0: Hi, this is Danielle from The Jealous Curator, and this is episode 153 of Art for Your Ear. Today, we're going to be talking to one of the loveliest, most generous people I've ever met. Samantha Fields is a painter from L.A., but she's also a professor at Cal State Northridge. Oh, and she taught art in a prison as well. (laughs) Yeah. Again, with this new format, I'll be starting each episode talking about something I think is worth sharing, either something I've been thinking about or stuff I've heard from other people. That will be followed by a conversation with one of my nine fabulous creative co-hosts. And finally, each episode will wrap up with a creative exercise for the week. No pressure, of course, but if you feel like you need a little kick, this might be it. Speaking of needing a little kick, let's talk about the amazing women at Thrive. They're one of the fabulous new sponsors for this season of the podcast, a perfect fit as far as I'm concerned. Thrive, now 300 members strong, including me, supports female, genderqueer, and gender non-binary visual artists from around the world by providing the community and the accountability, important, necessary to help them achieve their personal and professional goals. Thrive does this through membership in their Thrive Mastermind program. Members sign up for a year and meet monthly online with a group of around 10 other artists to talk about artwork, goals, struggles, and victories. Like I said last week, for me, it is always all about the accountability. When you have people that you're checking in with every month, you're more likely to do what you said you were going to do. Since 2015, Thrive's motto has been, make art, meet your people, and do the work. Check out thriveartstudio.com to learn more, and follow them on Instagram at thriveartstudio. So last week I called this segment, Danielle Gets Deep, which after I said it out loud, sounded kind of wrong. So today I'm going to steal from 1990's Saturday Night Live and call it Deep Thoughts by Danielle Krissa. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. (laughs) I totally just dated myself but I don't even care. So most artists, and by most artists, I mean 99% of us, are quite good at coming up with excuses for not making art. My go-to used to be light. Yes, I blamed the sun. For the first part of the day, my studio was way too bright, but by 3 p.m., my studio was too dark. Basically, I was giving myself about an hour in the middle of the day to make work, self-defeating, Yup, so over the winter, I renovated my scary hundred year old basement into a lovely home studio. Now I know what you're thinking, basement, isn't it dark all the time? Yes, but I can control the lighting with, wait for it, lights. (laughs) That way I get consistent light 24 hours a day. It has made a huge difference because now my main excuse is gone. That said, there are lots of other good ones to call upon, But if you actually think about why you can't possibly do anything creative today, you'll realize it is, in fact, just an excuse that you're throwing in your own way. Okay, so here's where I'm going to get heavy. Grief. I touched on this quickly last week, but I wanted to actually really dive in and talk about it today. So, grief. Everyone talks about grief, from movies to songs to greeting cards. We'll eventually all experience it and we've all handed out our fair share of I'm so sorry for your loss. I know I have. However, until you experience the kind of grief that doesn't allow you to take a deep breath for months, wakes you in the night, or stops you from wanting to shower, brush your hair, or leave the house, it's really hard to understand the impact it can have on, well, everything. I have lost a lot of people in my life from friends to relatives But nothing prepared me for the loss of my dad on November 30th, 2018. I had just had dinner with my parents about 10 days before. I was flying through Vancouver, where they live, so they met me at the airport for dinner. He showed me five zillion photos from their 50th wedding anniversary trip to India and Nepal that they'd just come home from. In my head, I was thinking, oh dear Lord, how many more photos can there be? But I ate my airport salad and listened to every single story that went with every single photo. I hugged him goodbye and said, Ah, too bad our flights don't overlap next week. We could do dinner again. I was flying to San Francisco for work, and my dad was going to be flying to Jamaica for the Reggae Marathon, an annual tradition with all of his running buddies. My dad is a super runner, and he's run, I think, just over maybe 25 or 26 marathons, 50 or 60 half marathons, and who knows how many shorter races. So, you see, nothing to worry about. He was super fit and off to one of his favorite places in the world. And then at 7 a.m. on November 30th, my mom called from Vancouver. She'd just been called by my dad's friend, Chris, and she had bad news. Two words that I still cannot get out of my head dad died. I remember thinking, who's dad? Not mine. And then it all becomes a bit of a blur after that. I won't go into great detail, but everything that happened after those two words just got worse and worse. Trying to deal with the Jamaican police, the Canadian consulate, trying to get my dad and all of his belongings home went on for months. I am not an expert on trauma, but boy, this sure felt like a never-ending nightmare that I could not wake up from. Needless to say, I was not motivated to do anything. I didn't want to shower. I didn't want to see the sweet friends that were trying to drop off lasagna. And I certainly did not feel like making art. Was this an excuse? Maybe. Would art have helped? Maybe. Did I try? Not really. I stopped the podcast because it just felt too overwhelming. I canceled almost all of my scheduled events, except one that Sam and I are going to talk about today. If you've ever heard one of my talks, either online or at one of the events that I didn't cancel, I mentioned my dad a lot. He was easily my biggest fan. He framed my drawings with real glass and gold frames when I was little. He's the one who convinced me to switch from science to fine art when I was in university and he had a PhD in science. I know, craziness. But he told me I'd been an artist since the day I was born and that I should do what I love. Once Jell's curator started, he and my husband were the only two people reading it every day for quite a long time. And when it started getting bigger, my dad reposted pretty much any bit of news I ever had. Book deals, speaking at Pixar, doing TEDx. He told everyone he knew about everything I was doing. It was funny, and it was a little honestly embarrassing. But now I would give anything to have him tag me on Facebook. Anyway, somewhere around February of 2019, I had no choice but to start making art because I had a solo show that was gonna open on June 1st at Mayberry Fine Art in Toronto. So I figured there should probably be some art in there. I cried a lot in the first few days and I tried to drum up some other excuses to prevent me from starting. Unfortunately for me, the lighting was perfect. The only way I could start was to make the first piece, the main piece that would hang in the front window of the gallery about my dad. I could hear him cheering me along the way I laughed, I cried, and I thought about stories that I hadn't thought about in years. And I actually started having fun again. I was painting and collaging 8 to 10 hours a day, and it felt amazing. I got in the zone and just worked. Listened to music, put favorite movies on in the background, and thought about my dad. It was really healing, and as a bonus, all of the work got finished. So here we are, several months later, coming up on the one-year anniversary of losing him. I'm still not over it. I still have days when I just start crying in the middle of the grocery store because, I don't know, I see the brand of coffee he used to buy. But I'm moving forward. And I'm also allowing myself not to be okay sometimes. Trying to fight grief, in my experience, is impossible. It's just there. It changes as time passes. But it's still there but the, because the person that you love is not. In case you don't already know this, I am a control freak. Well, grief does not give a shit about that. You can't control grief. You can't make it go away. You can't make it speed up. All you can do is be okay with not being okay. You can also start getting up and living again. My dad would want more things to repost on Facebook. So I've been setting goals again. Not too many that will make me feel overwhelmed, but a few important ones that I really care about that will also continue to help me move forward. And it's working. Oh, and you'll be happy to know that I'm showering again, so that's good. If you're experiencing any kind of loss right now, or if you do in the future, just know that you will find your way through that fog. Give yourself time, ask for help, eat that lasagna that people bring, And if you can use art as a way of expressing what you're feeling, do. It helped me so much, and now I have a whole series of work that feels like my dad. See, I told you that was going to get heavy. This has been such a huge part of my life for the past year, and it felt weird just picking up with the podcast and moving along without truly addressing why the podcast went away. Now you know. And... Hopefully you also know you're not alone, because all of us go through junk from time to time, and life will be waiting for you when you're ready to stand up again. That was the biggest lesson I learned in all of this. Speaking of lessons, let's get on with today's conversation with Samantha Fields. She is an amazing painter, but she's also been an art professor for years. Not like the unnamed professors I had, Sam is supportive and encouraging with a refreshing approach to critique and conceptual thinking. That said, she has so many stories about what students have taught her. So we're going to be diving into a segment I like to call, Samantha Fields, Get Schooled. Ready? Here I am talking to Sam in Los Angeles. Hi, Sam. Hi,
1: Danielle. (laughs) (laughs)
0: it's funny I have Sam written at the top of my paper here but I was like "Ooh, should I be calling her Samantha Fields
1: (laughs) only my mom calls me that (laughs) okay (laughs) pay me checks
0: (laughs) (laughs) and when it's written in um, vinyl on a window of a gallery
1: that is correct yes
0: um but now that I know you you're you're just Sam I was you when I was intimidated by you when I thought you were um scary you were Samantha in my mind. But then um, our mutual friend, Melinda, was like, what? No, it's just Sam and she's awesome. And he, yeah, you are. And here we are.
1: Oh, thank you. You know, a lot of students are afraid of me at first, too, which is really interesting. But of course, you know, after a couple of weeks, I'm Sam as well. Yeah, I
0: can't imagine it would even take a couple of weeks. You're very welcoming. And it was so fun. I actually came to see CSUN. That's really right. Know that.
1: Yeah, you know, in fact, I just did a studio visit with Adrienne Kinsella, who was doing the sketchbook with the creature features. Oh, yes. Remember? And you changed her life. She's making huge paintings of like she's painting the wolfman barbecuing in the backyard in this like kind of semi creepy modernist. Really? Yeah. (gasps) She's still working on that stuff after that crit. It was really formative. Oh my gosh. That is so
0: exciting to hear because I, sometimes when I do those crits, I get a little too excited slash bossy. <laughs> 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 Just tell people what, I'm like, oh my God. And then you could do this. But isn't that funny how you can do that for other people, but not yourself sometimes?
1: Totally. I mean, that's why you need critique. That's why it's important your whole entire life.
0: Yeah. Yep.
1: yep. I
0: like to call it feedback. I have like PTSD around critique.
1: Oh, I know, because I, I've heard these stories about critique and critique is often quite terrible. And I actually have a saying I say to my students um, in this class I teach called Art 307, and I hammer it home. The purpose of critique, the sole purpose of critique is to know and to see how your work comes across to other people. That's it. Hmm. I love and that. if so you think about it that way, I'm like, you know, it doesn't matter if they like it. It doesn't matter if they think you're an awesome person. It doesn't matter if they dislike you. All that matters is what's coming across. And then what do you do when you get back to the studio? That's it.
0: Yeah. How do you move forward from there?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love and it that. Is crazily helpful for them. And for me, you know, as someone who's often doing the critiques. Mm-hmm. And for
0: me and for everybody just listening, that is a really nice thing to put in your mind because, um, yeah, it can go sideways really fast if you're not thinking of it that way.
1: Yeah, if there's a lot of egos involved. In fact, in this class, we actually, which I'll talk about a little bit, I think you might be interested in it and the listeners might be interested in it. We actually make swag at the end of the class based on what happens in the class and we give it to the students. So one year we made buttons that said critique is my mirror and it was a reflective button. And so all (laughs) students from Art 307 have the button. And when they see other students with the button, they know that they are fellow alumni from art 307. Oh my God. I love it. Yeah. We like doing stuff like that.
0: See now I'm like brainstorming other things that you (laughs) can. Okay. But I won't do that right now. So, um, well, what I'm doing with the new podcast, so you're going to be your episode two of this whole new fangled setup.
1: So exciting. So, So
0: exciting. And, um, so everybody, all of you, amazing nine, I'm calling you the magnificent nine. Um, that are going to kind of co-host with me, and we'll just sort of um, rotate through you guys. You all have your own segments, and so you are an amazing artist yourself, but I also think that you're a fabulous teacher. I got to watch you with your students last year, and it was just amazing, and you're so generous with your information and your guidance and everything, so that I want to have a segment with you called Samantha Fields Get Schooled, Lessons (laughs) from Students. Because I know teachers always say they learn just as much from their students as their students learn from them. Right? Very, very true. And I
1: loved it. In fact, you had sent me a whole list of things we could talk about, but I really latched on to that one.
0: (laughs) So I want to do that. But before we launch into you getting schooled, um, let's just do a little quick recap of you because you were on the podcast. I don't even know when that was. It's all a blur now.
1: Yeah. A while ago.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um you are an amazing painter. I it I mean, I thought you were a photographer. A pa- lot of
1: people do. Yes,
0: because your paintings look like blurry photographs, but it's actually layers and layers and layers of spray, well, spray paints the wrong way to say it, right?
1: Yeah, it's, it's airbrush. So it's a really really thin hyper pigmented acrylic paint. Yeah, it's insane.
0: It's crazy talk. And, um, okay, so uh, there's storms and there's fires and there's fireworks. Those are a lot of your subjects. But you know what I just noticed? There's a lot of family, old family photos going on over
1: there right now. Yes, there's been a bit of a shift in the work. Yeah, what what's going on? Well, I, you know... For the last like two years, I'd been working on this work that was more about political disaster because, you know, my my work's about disasters primarily, right? Various of various sorts, um, and I even made work about my father when uh, he w- had a heart transplant. It was a body of work called transplant. And it was more about a familial disaster and distance and landscape and how all those things kind of weave together. Um, so I was home this summer and. You know, ironic. I mean, it's not ironic. I do not even know why I'm saying that word. But when I was a kid, a tornado destroyed my grandfather's house. So this whole storm thing that I do is really connected to my own personal life and family.
0: Was that a conscious, like, did you even piece that together when you started going down all these disaster routes? Was that like something that you would thought of? Or was that just part of your, you know, makeup and you didn't even realize it?
1: I think initially it was part of my makeup and I didn't realize it, but I have always been obsessed with severe weather since Mm. that moment. I was, I think I was 10 when it happened or 11 and I was terrified of tornadoes. You know, we do tornado drills and I would be so scared every time I would have to like go to the bathroom. The teacher's like, why do you have to go during the drill? I'm like, I'm so scared. Oh, (laughs) You're scaring the poop out of me. Like I have to go to the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) so I mean it's a really visceral obviously response and so um my grandfather was an amateur photographer and he also loved to shoot movies and so did my dad well all of those movies were in the house um and they kind of got tossed about in the tornado and lost and for oh my gosh it's been over 35 years we didn't know where they were and my grandfather passed away uh, about 10 years ago and my uncle who had been caretaking him you know, he, they lived together and he took care of him. He died last year. So when we went through his, you know, storage, my cousin found the movies in an old Mr. Coffee box. Oh my gosh. And they were all mixed up, you know, and some of them are really damaged and knew how to look at them and i'm the artist in the family who knows like a middling about about a middling amount about technology and film and photography so i volunteered to take them home and i got a digital converter and i started converting the movies and when i looked at them danielle it was so crazy a lot of the images you know when you're filming and you look away from your subject for a minute and you come back it's like that so they'll be filming kids playing and then they'll point the camera up at the sky and there's an airplane Oh. You know, and there's so many images in the films that I actually use in my work, snowstorms, stuff like that. Wow. And I was like, what is happening? Like, some of this stuff actually looks like imagery that I use in my work. Oh, um, my gosh. I just got chills. It. I've been a little bit freaked out all summer because I feel like there's some confluence happening. And um, so I finished transferring all the films, and I'm taking still frames from those movies and making paintings from them. Oh. So right. wow,
0: yeah. that's, so, this is what I love about your work too, is like, there's always so much behind everyone, <laughs> you know, like there's like some epic journey to Mount St. Helens or there's like some crazy thing to make it all happen. And wow, that is so cool. So are are you doing them big or are they small?
1: Well, I started off doing tiny gouache paintings. Yeah, of- that's what I saw. Yeah. And, uh, and then once I do that, I move to the studio. And I just recently in the last couple weeks started making larger works on paper, and I'm getting ready to move to canvas. So yeah, there'll, there'll be some quite large paintings. And my family, you know, they, they, a lot of these movies are down in West Virginia, the ones my grandfather shot, like down in the holler. Mm -hmm. So I mean, it's a bygone America. It's a thing that's gone. Like, none of this exists anymore. So it's really interesting. It's like everything's a ghost, you know? Wow,
0: yeah, and that's perfect with your work.
1: I know, and I I really, I'm so excited about it, and I can't wait. It's probably going to take me about a year to finish a body of work, but I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Oh
0: my gosh. That is very exciting. Well, we will be watching, um, with bated breath on Instagram to see it all come (laughs) together. Thank you. (laughs) Um, and so you're, um, this will bridge the two worlds perfectly. So you teach twice, so two days a week and you paint two days a week, three days a week. How do how do you break out your, how do you balance all that?
1: Yeah, I probably paint more like four or five days a week. Yeah, okay. It depends on what my committee workload is, because I'm a full professor. So I have like some obligations outside of my teaching. Um, but I really do a minimum of three days a week, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but I engage with my practice every day. I think we've talked about this before. Like, I there's not a day that I'm not engaging with my work in some way. Like the big epic eight hour painting days, those are on days where I'm not teaching for sure. But research, printing images, looking at images, you know, going to my sketchbook and reviewing my thoughts, that kind of stuff I do every single day.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah. how, how do you feel, so are there, there's people in these pieces now? I know the
1: figure, right? I know, it's,
0: how do you feel, I, I mean?
1: I feel like it's a little scandalous given my work. <laughs> <laughs> You're just living on
0: the edge now.
1: <laughs> I know, and you know, I went to the Cleveland Institute of Art, which has a really strong figurative program. So I'm, I'm pretty adept with the figure actually, and I made figurative work long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> but um, so it's kind of fun to go back to painting the figure again. It's, yeah,
0: they're beautiful, and I was, but I, I mean, I assume you can do everything. But I was like, what, but, Sam? <laughs> So I was so happy that I knew we had this coming up because I was like, I already have a lot of questions. So, okay. That is excellent to know. And I cannot wait to see that unfold. Um, Okay. So I'm going to take you out of your studio and put you back over at school. Right. So um, we were talking about this before, you know, when we were planning what we were going to do. And I said, you know, do you learn lots of stuff from your students? And you said, oh boy, do I. And you sent me lists of hilarious things and lists of some super hardcore serious things. What? Where do you want to start?
1: Well, maybe we can start with some funny things that I learned yesterday. Oh, okay. Yes. What did you learn? Well, this is goofy and funny, but um, I want to preface this by saying like a lot of stuff comes from the way that I teach because I don't teach in that old top down method you know, I teach more with a mentorship and collaborative model where a lot of the curriculum and a lot of the lessons and a lot of the things that I develop really are made in tandem with students. So they're based on the students.
0: Mm-hmm. I, you wish you know, were, what, I wish you'd been my teacher.
1: Well, I wish I'd been your teacher or that we went to the same school. I know me too. Okay, go on. But we, um, As a result, I talk to students a lot. I listen to them, I watch them, I follow them, and they do the same with me. And we really, really have, I call it the infinite conversation. Um, And they bring as much to me as I bring to them. So it really creates space for everybody to contribute. Um, So in this R307 class I teach, which we literally describe as a class to give forum to the unvoiced concerns that students have. It's a Uh discussion slash studio class. Uh, I wrote it with my friend and collaborator, Ron Saito, who's also on the faculty. And there's something we do. We have a discussion every week. And then, you know, the discussion goes, it's like doing a podcast. Like you don't always know where it's going to go, right? Mm-hmm. And it's always super interesting topics. We talk about dying moles. We talk about the apocalypse. We talk about utopias. All of this, of course, in relation to like discourse and critical theory. So it's, you know, it's academic but fun. <laughs> and, um, and students love the class. And so all this crazy stuff comes up in the critique. And so I put an extra module each week after class called tidbits. Now, I don't know how I started calling it the tidbits, (laughs) but it's the tidbits. And the students now, when I bring something up or another student brings something up that everybody wants to know more about, we yell, put it in the tidbits. You know. I make a note and then I make this tidbits (laughs) module once a week with Tidbits. And this week's tidbits had sea sun squirrels. So that's one of the things I learned. There's an Instagram account for sun squirrels, which are these chubby squirrels that eat a lot of pizza and hot dogs and French fries, and they lay flat on the ground. And I see them all the time, but I didn't know that there's some student documenting the squirrels on campus.
0: <laughs> oh my god, that is hilarious! What, yes. What's the handle? Is it just Seasun Squirrels?
1: It's Seasun Squirrels on Instagram, and we um, we were talking about the interface between us and nature. Like, do we protect nature? Does nature need protection from us? We were talking about the modernist view versus the contemporary view of nature. You know, is nature a sublime wonderland that gives us inspiration and awe, or is it something that we're destroying with our very presence? So it was a very serious topic. But it did yield sun squirrels in the <laughs> Oh, my God. Are you
0: looking at them in a whole new way now? Well, I guess it's all, it was only yesterday.
1: <laughs> it was only – well, yeah. I mean, the students feed the squirrels. That's why. Yeah. They're chubby and adorable. And so well, – uh, They got to lie down, I guess. I know. It's become a project for some student. But I love that because that's where art comes from, right? It totally. It the life that you live and the things that you see and the things that, like, pike your curiosity and – and so see Sun Squirrels it sounds absurd but I mean they, I think they have more followers than I do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my god that's awesome. Well now see now I have to come back because I need to see them.
1: <laughs> that is right. And right. but we also they also taught me about machine learning yesterday. So I had a student Andrew who um he was telling me about this program. It's like deep fakes. We were talking about deep fakes. There's a program where you have like a really basic it looks like ms paint and you can make a line and if you have a photograph on the other side the machine learning anticipates what you want and creates it photorealistically so like a, just like a stupid simple line becomes a waterfall i was like i don't even know what this is this is magic <laughs> so it's the, something coming out of the ai machine learning world
0: uh oh see they're going to they're going to take over
1: i uh, andrew yang is right man the yeah. robots are for us. That's, that's
0: right. It's just going to be the robots and the squirrels.
1: <laughs> yeah, he showed me the video. I couldn't believe it. So like my students, in some ways, I think they're so much savvier about cutting edge technology than I am. So that's something I pick up a lot from them. And it's just fascinating. To well, see what that doing. and eyebrows. That's right. I did learn how to draw on an eyebrow, although I still don't do it very well. <laughs> um, my student will bet um, who is a CSULA graduate? Um, she has these perfect eyebrows, and mine are bleached from the sun. As and are
0: mine. I barely have eyebrows. I
1: know it's it's a sad, sad thing, you know. And I always was like, your eyebrows are perfect. And she said, I'm going to give you some eyebrows. And so at the end of CSU Summer Arts, one summer, she gave me a makeover, and she gave me eyebrows, and I look like a different human being.
0: Did it take like Did it take ten years off?
1: Oh my God! Yeah, I look like a movie star. I, I look. Know she put some cat eyes on me too it's amazing and she did it so fast it took her like five minutes it would take me an hour to do I can paint on a canvas like nobody's business but my own face is like a mystery <laughs> you'll have to get an
0: airbrush and just airbrush your face <laughs> exactly. I think that's what the Kardashians do they must they yeah. must well it's a blending technique right exactly blend and you blend and you blend if see I don't blend. have that kind of patience and also if I tried to do a cat eye to myself it would look like I'd
1: like Something terrible had happened. I always look like I have a black eye. Same. Like somebody put me in the face. So I don't, I just don't bother. Uh, and, uh, but Lovette taught me how. So that's one of the weirder things, but also super fun things. Like, yes, I allowed a student to give me a makeover. And I think it's kind of the kind of thing most professors <laughs> wouldn't do, you know?
0: <laughs> See, that's why you're so awesome. Okay, and the other thing that was on your list that I don't really get either, and people listening, I'm embarrassed because they probably get it. And know Patreon yes what oh gosh. what about- is yeah. it I set up an account because I was like I think I'm supposed to do this and now I don't know what I'm supposed to do
1: <laughs> I'm going to talk to my students tomorrow and we're going to give you some advice
0: <laughs> okay great throw me in the tidbit jar because
1: I like
0: yeah I, I, wh-
1: it, it's a patronage it's a literal sponsor so from what I gather the way it works is say you're an artist And which we are. Yeah. And you want to people want to support you, right? Aside from like likes or like external validation, they can contribute a small amount every month. And these small amounts add up to like a stipend.
0: But then are you is it like Kickstarter where then you're supposed to like be sending them prints or something every month?
1: Yeah, from what I gather, it seems that a lot of people give their Patreon sponsors, maybe they have a name, I don't know enough about it. Oh my God, I feel like I'm like the middle-aged lady talking about the hip stuff the kids do. I know, (laughs) me
0: too. And we both got our eyebrows drawn on all wrong when we're talking about this.
1: I know. And (laughs) they came up in class because we were talking about one of the things we talk about in Art 307 is the Hunger Games Mm -hmm. and how Katniss has to get sponsorship to survive. And we talk about that movie in relation to Twister, where... Bill Paxton's team looks askance at Jonas' team because they sold out and got themselves some corporate sponsors, and so we look at these two different economies as creative people, and and what are our thoughts about that, right? And so that's when the students brought up Patreon. They're like, "Well, you can get a sponsor." <laughs> I was like, "Okay, wow." So yeah. yeah, that's how I learned. I yeah,
0: I saw somebody said to me because I I'm trying to raise money for this um. Venice thing. I pitched an idea, this installation for Venice during the Biennale in 2021, but I need a ton of money to make it happen. And I was like, "Ah, what do I, I don't even know how I do that. And so somebody suggested that. So I was like, cool. So I can sign up for anything. So I went and did that and I'm like, okay, now I, now it says zero funders, zero projects. (laughs) 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 And I'm like, oh, I am, I am rocking this right now.
1: Well, you are ahead of me, so (laughs) I am going to, I am not kidding, Danielle, I'm going to ask my students tomorrow, what are their best Patreon tips? Because we're still still talking about this subject tomorrow in class. Okay, great. Yeah, we're still on this module. Okay,
0: you know what, and I have a feeling that there's a lot of people listening that are going, "Uh, I can tell you, and so hopefully people will leave comments and explain it, and anybody who doesn't get it will um, get, you know, something out of this.
1: Yes, they'll all we'll all be brought up to speed yes, together.
0: That would be great. Um and then the other fun thing on your list, I don't know how to pronounce this, gala? Gala quilts.
1: Oh yes, 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 gula quilts.
0: Okay, what is that?
1: Those are quilts. They're narrative quilts. Um and they're made they're really like, I think, part of the big influence in Faith Ringgold's work. So if you know Faith Ringgold's narrative quilts that tell these stories. No, but I'm um, going to go look now. Yeah. So everybody look up Faith Ringgold. She's super famous. So it's really, really easy to find her work if you're not familiar with it. And um, I have one of my graduate students, Michael Roman, um actually told me about Gullah quilts because i had brought up Faith Ringgold and I, he showed them to me and we sh- we were teaching so we showed them to the students and I was like these are amazing and so they're a type of narrative quilt making that doesn't really function inside the like contemporary art discourse but I think has had a big influence on a lot of artists who do work within the contemporary art discourse. Hmm. Yeah we and can
0: narrative in a visual way or are there actual words in there too or no?
1: yeah I think some of them have text, a lot of pictures. there's a lot of symbolism. Mm. um they're beautiful like if you I was really stunned by them, um but yeah, that was just that kind of stuff happens every day though, where I'm like, I don't know what that is. Tell me what that is. and I think to learn things from students, you have to have enough humility to know that you don't know everything,
0: so yeah, and I think that would be like you'd think like if with you know certain professors from my past that I won't name. Um, I think um, there's ego involved, right? So you're like supposed to be the professor. So you don't want to admit that you don't know anything. Right. That there's stuff exactly. that you don't know. And so um, it's so cool to be like, yeah, what is that? I'd rather find out th- than just be cool and not, you know, not find out.
1: Yeah. And I think that that's why so many students feel dismissed or not part of the conversation. Mostly students of color, women. You know, because the things we bring up might not be on the radar of like the canon, quote unquote, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're like, well, I don't know what that is. It must not be important. But I think I'm like a curious animal. So when somebody brings something up, I'm like, tell me all about it. Send me, put it in the tidbits. So mm-hmm. I want to know.
0: See, and I'm like that now at 40 something. But when I was in university, I was so intimidated that if, the, if something was being talked about, I was way too shy and embarrassed to go, I don't know what that is. Because I already felt like I was back on my heels with a lot of those people. Mm. So I would never say, and I was going to ask you about that, like in your, um, when you guys have those discussions in the 307 class. Does everybody participate or can you see that there's some people who are like,
1: you know? Yeah, I'm- that is such a good question. Um, we actually use the feminist model where everyone, we sit in a circle around a table so everybody can see everybody else. And the students read an article, um, that was written by Ron, who, my collaborator. And then there's a series of questions they answer online, uh, two days before the class. Oh, and mm-hmm. then we go around the circle and everybody has a chance to answer a question. And what's nice is that they've had time to think about it ahead of time. They've had time to formulate an answer ahead of time. And so even the super shy introverted students, they have something in front of them. You know, they're not put on the, they don't feel like they're put on the spot, you know? Right. So everybody participates and it's wonderful. And the best feedback I've gotten about the class is that students like it because they get to hear what other students think.
0: Yeah, that's, and everybody, not just two people who dominate everything.
1: Yeah, well, we have those too, but of course. <laughs> <laughs> but if you
0: have a system set up where it's not just a free-for-all and those two people can take over, like if everybody has a turn. Yep, that's right. Yeah, that's so
1: nice. That's See, this is why I need to come back to school and be in your class. You need to come back and visit any time. The students would love it because you give critique, I think, from a very similar place, you know, like it's an authentic place where you really are curious about what they're doing. And so it's more of a conversation than it is like a, you should do this with your work.
0: Yeah, totally, totally. And I remember feeling like that when you said at the end of, you know, at the end of the thing, do you want to do these three or four um, one-on-one critiques? I was like, "Uh oh, (laughs) <laughs> no, because I don't, you know, I I just had such a bad experience that I would hate to be a person giving someone a bad experience. Yeah. Which is why I use the word feedback because then it's like to me it's like takes the trauma out of it. <laughs> but um those were so much fun. Like I just, all of those people were so amazing and just like chatting with them like from the beginning of our our like half hour together to the end of it was Amazing, like because they start out a little bit shy or a little bit quieter, but that stuff that we were talking about by the end was yes. just so interesting and like I was like just so excited to be
1: like I need to see what you do from this because it's just so exciting. Yeah, that's like every day teaching at CSUN for me. Like that's what I do.
0: Yeah, that so, is a good job. Me. Yep, that is that's even better. <laughs> <I know. laughs> and um was oh, I was going like, to ask you, uh, rewind, rewind. Um, oh, I know what I was going to say. Um, I have to come next year when my kid's book comes out. <gasps> and we'll do a story time. Fun. Yeah, I'm so proud of it. And um, it's all about being an art kid, basically. And I'm sure all of those students were art kids at one point. And um, so we'll come and we, all, we can get donuts, and yes. Milk and cookies and do a story time. We can.
1: We can have tea. Yeah. And we can give our leftover cookies to the squirrels. That they will. <laughs> They will run away with those cookies. <laughs> they're, they're, they're chubby, but fast. Yeah.
0: Just I like mean, me. The
1: squirrels are the cutest squirrels. They're, they're ridiculous. <laughs>
0: um, so those are all the silly, fun things. And I'm sure there's 12 million more. Um, but you also had three sort of never say die story for me that, um, I mean, you just wrote a few sentences so that I'd get the gist. And like, they all kind of made me tear up a little bit. Um, so let's talk about some of
1: those. Yes. Was was there one that stood out to you as um, well, the
0: swimming from China to Hong Kong was something?
1: Yeah, that was. And that's a student from quite, quite some time ago. That was much earlier in my teaching career that I met Sue. Um, that was her American name, her Chinese name, Sal. Um, she was uh, basically someone who wanted to escape communist China and she swam to Hong Kong <laughs> and she talked about it so casually, like when she told me about how she had come to the United States and, you know, how she'd come to Hong Kong and and, you know, her journey of eventually that brought her to Cal State Northridge. It was just so stunning to me that she made the swim and, and she talked about how dangerous it was and how cold the water was and how dark it was. And and, you know, that they they have, you know, people with guns watching the water to to try to catch people who are trying to leave and she made it.
0: Oh, my God. Was she by herself or with her family? Or
1: I don't remember that part of the story, if she had some sort of network or if she had family in Hong Kong. But I just remember that vision of her swimming has always kind of stayed in my mind. Yeah. But the thing I learned about her, right? Because I have so many students with stories like this. I've, I've, I've had refugee students. um I've had students who've escaped oppression. Like, I've had I've had students with these incredible, incredible stories. And she was the most cheerful person. She was an adult. She was a returning student. Always smiling. Always cheerful. Every time she came to see me for a meeting, she would bring me, like, a meal. <laughs> not, not like a snack. Like, she was convinced that I was too skinny. And she... <laughs> like she would bring me like salmon and rice and like <laughs> rolls And like, I, I would be like, Sal, you don't have to bring me all this stuff. She's like, oh, you've been here all day. You need to eat. And I think she's someone who had endured great hardship in her life, but it made her someone who was so generous to the people around her. And I, I think the lesson I kind of took from that is like, you know, I've lived this life of incredible privilege and to see how being so tested in life can cause you to be a person who spreads kindness Yeah, us. I, I think that I've learned that lesson so many times from my students. I'm very grateful that I get to talk to these people and, and the honor of hearing their stories is,
0: is something else. Mm-hmm. Well, and especially art students because then what they've experienced, they then parlay into the work they're doing. Like The, the other one on your list was, um, um, I think it was a woman tortured in Iran.
1: Yeah, so I had a student, I don't want to say her name because I'm still not sure, you know. Yeah, yes. She's still a little, um, you always have to wonder if they're still keeping an eye on you, especially uh, with Iran, but she had been imprisoned and she was making this work and it was these vases. She was painting these little vessels with a crack in them and nobody understood it. Like every crit, people are like, why? I mean, there were hundreds of them and she would never say what they were about, you know. And she applied and was denied to the graduate program several times just because the pain, it was like the same painting over and over again. It was like obsessive. And finally, you know, I decided to start working with her. I was like, why don't you work with me and let's see, you know, what comes of it? Because I really felt for her, you know, like I knew there was something, but I didn't know what it was. And one day I was getting ready to go and I had a critique scheduled with her and it was going to be like the same kind of normal critique that we always have. And as I'm packing up to leave, she starts talking in this very soft voice. And I was like, you know, part of my mind was like, I need to go home and make dinner. And another part of my mind was like, you need to stop what you're doing and sit down and listen to this woman. And because she was a very quiet person, and I sat down and started listening, and she just slowly told me this whole story about her imprisonment. She had been, you know, handing out newspaper like a newsletter, that's why she got picked up. Oh my God. And so, the story that she told me that has always stuck with me is she was in this prison. Um, you know, and and everybody in the prison was tortured regularly, like things like kneeling and things like having to hold your arms out and all kinds of stuff. And she made work about it. And she actually did performances where we all subjected ourselves to some of the same postures that she was forced to hold for many hours at a time. So it's really powerful work. Um, but she was in the prison and they were in a dirt bottom cell with like three or four other women. And they had nothing like zero, like they'd throw them bread and some water or whatever, but they didn't have very much. So they would dig in the dirt and they would find pieces of plastic and little bits of trash and tin foil or whatever they would find. And they would make gifts for each other. They would like polish the plastic and bore a hole in it and make a necklace. And when it was somebody's birthday, everybody would give that person a gift that they had literally dug out of the impacted earth. Like, whatever little bits of detritus they could find. Oh my God. And, yeah. And she told me, and she's like, This is why I remain optimistic because it doesn't matter where the bottom is. If you look, you will be able to find some beauty to hold on to. And she said, That's what helped her keep her humanity. And it's also what caused her never to break. And Yeah, I know, right? I'm, I'm like bawling. Of course, she suddenly started just crying. I'm like, oh my god, that's what the cracked vases were about. Wow. And did
0: she just not feel comfortable saying that out loud in a group?
1: Yeah, I think she was trying to make a metaphor, you know, and it, it just wasn't coming across. Like I say, critique is learning how your work comes across to others. There wasn't enough information for the viewer to understand what she was trying to say. And of course she went on to make this incredible work. She came out of her shell. I think all she needed was to feel like there was someone she could tell the story to. Um, And I think as a teacher, knowing when to listen, you you know, I can't solve her problems, right? Like there's nothing I can do for her, except for listen to what she has to say and then support what she wants to do with that, you know? Mm Kid. You know, I just was like, okay, I'm going to just listen to her. And that changed her work. You know, she wrote a book. I mean, she really like,
0: wow. Yeah. Wow. She
1: went on And there was a moment as she got closer to thesis where she felt like she had seen one of the people who had persecuted her. Um, and she was very scared. And so she kind of locked it all back down and edited her. So the, the, we run into a lot of this kind of stuff when we work with students from countries with Um, Less than friendly regimes towards artists who are oftentimes considered subversives, you know, right? Of course. Yeah Well, and a woman yeah and a woman and we have to be careful about the artwork that they make when they come to the states because you know, there's a lot of self-censorship that happens When you're at home and then you come here and suddenly you can make all this work about all this stuff but now with the advent of the internet and social media where everything gets broadcast it's really easy to know what people are doing. So if they want to go back home again, then they have to deal with the repercussions of the work that they do here. Um, And that's something we encounter a lot, actually.
0: That's insane. And like you said earlier, you know, like, well, you and I look like we're related, like blonde, you know, like privileged, like you just, you know, my my husband always teases me because um, he grew up in um, communist Poland and they escaped. in the early 80s, um, sort of during the Cold War, and they lived in a uh, refugee camp um, in Italy and then came to Canada. And meanwhile, <laughs> I was here like water skiing in the summer and like skiing in winter and like, you know, full on 80s. <laughs> like, right. And my husband always teases me and he's like, so did you grow up in a Juicy Fruit commercial? because that's basically what it was. And then meanwhile, like, he told me that he used to ride his bike in tank tracks and stuff, because then you could get good air, you know, like, and it's just like, what? And so when you hear these stories, yeah, it just makes you feel sick, like, you know, to know that we do not understand that kind of fear and that kind of um, persecution for nothing.
1: Yeah and like true, true adversity. And it helps create a sense of perspective in your own life. And it also, for me, it's, I always think of it as like, I I try to use my powers for good. Like, I I have a platform, I have a voice, I have uh, these classes, so I can create space for other people, you know, to be become empowered. Mm -hmm. And to your voice and and that really as an art teacher you know I teach technique and I teach skills and I teach all the like super hardcore like here's the technical information because I think you need those in your toolbox but I teach a lot of conceptual development and I teach a lot of stuff about like learning to trust your gut learning to know what your work is learning you know what makes you excited mm-hmm. to your work like what is that thing and a lot of times you know all art comes from some story that we have about ourselves right mm-hmm. and there's so many people with stories that they can't tell or they're afraid to tell or you know they're too delicate to be told because there are ramifications you know maybe you have family back in Iran or whatever you know so we really un- try to unpack all that stuff and create as much support as possible for people and it's really It's really something else. And I feel like being in a place like Los Angeles, where we have like a true, truly diverse international student body really creates like fertile ground for students, not just for me, but for, I mean, the students with each other to learn each other's stories and learn about each other's experiences and form understandings and finding commonality like it's a pretty incredible thing to witness
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I know and that's it, I, that's what I even find with the blog too like especially once I started writing books about people it, just to really get into people's stories is just I mean it's such a privilege when you get let into those stories
1: when people trust you enough to share them with you yeah special and i love stories so i'm a big reader i love to watch the movies i read everything i can get my hands on so when people start telling me their stories i just feel like wow i can't believe i get this and listen to you talk to me about this it's incredible and then you know as an educator i just try to listen to what there's people say and then whatever resources so other artists dealing with similar issues any sort of campus resources right Mm -hmm. that they You know, then it's like as a teacher, my job isn't just to listen. It's then to try to figure out, okay, how can I create a scaffolding around this so that this student can be successful in their work? Mm -hmm. And that's exciting. That's that's like I feel like the heart of what I do. Like my job is to kind of decenter myself and instead create structures. I think of it like this in my mind. It's like a scaffolding of information and resources and communities that can be woven together for each student to be successful outside of school because so many of them that, you know, they, they may have you as a mentor, but they have to be able to thrive when they leave. Yeah. You that's, know? that's
0: a huge, that's a huge part of it. You get out of art school and you're, or any kind of university and you're like, um,
1: now yeah, what? <laughs> now. Yeah. It's like the void.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, you know, I had, um, Ashley Longshore was the first, um, person I had back on for this new podcast thing. And we were just talking about, um, how, you know, especially with social media, there's like, you're tempted to copy, you know, like, Oh, look, this is trendy and this is selling. I'm going to go do this. But it's, it's really, if you can harness your own story because no one else has that story.
1: Yeah. You know, and you
0: might think, Oh, for me, it's like, Oh, it was a juicy fruit commercial. Like, what am I going to harness? Like nothing nothing happened to me, but it's like, but my life happened to me and there's special things in that and I can harness that and it will be individually me. And I think that, you know, that's such an important thing, like a student or not a student or a student of life is to really like stop and realize that your point of view, your story, you know, your memories, all of it, like even this new work that you're doing, like finding those boxes of of old movies and stuff, like, that is uniquely you. Yeah. And it's so beautiful when you can just try and shut out all the noise of all the social and what's selling and what's showing and whatever, and just go, okay, what is it about me that's special that I want to share through my art?
1: Right. And 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 what, where is it going to be interesting to other people? Like I'm always thinking like, will other people be interested in this? And I found that If you're, if you, what you're doing is, is real, like authentically honest, it it almost always is Yeah. because I I fundamentally believe we're more alike than we are different on the most basic levels. Like the things that move us, the things that inspire us, the things that mean something to us as human beings, um, the specificity of our lives. There's, there's a kind of weird universality in that, you know? Totally. Totally. Yeah, and so I tell my students, like, don't be generic. Don't Don't listen to catchphrases or platitudes or, you know, cliches. Like, what weirdness in your life, you know, makes you you? Mm-hmm. Like,
0: That's what <laughs> Ashley said. She said, you know, your weirdness is your superpower.
1: That is right. You know, and
0: it's totally true. It's just like, own it, you know, instead of trying to, like, please everybody all the time. Or, you know, like, I remember thinking, like, that I wanted to make art that... I again, trauma from the, the critiques. I just wanted to make art that everyone liked. And it's like, oh my God, that doesn't exist. And if it did, it would be oatmeal.
1: <laughs> it's true. You, you know? yeah, prints or something.
0: Yeah, it's just like, oh God, no, let's not do that. Um, well, and then um, you also have students that aren't at CSUN that are in a prison.
1: Yeah, so that, I, I'm not working with the collective anymore. Okay. Although I'm still in touch with everybody um, that's running it. My friend Annie Buckley... Um, started a project called the Prison Arts Collective. Um, and she's in San Diego now running the program. And she's got the program up and running at prisons all over Southern California and and beyond now even, I think. And it's um, a pretty incredible, incredible program. I was invited as a guest artist um, to the prison in Chino. And of course, everything went wrong, by the way. So it's one thing I learned is it's very hard to get in and out of a prison as a visitor or as a guest like the bureaucracy involved is pretty intense like the background checks all the things i had to do so i did all that and then we wanted to get a computer in so that i could show a slide talk Mm -hmm. and something happened with the computer i'm not even 100 percent sure what happened but the computer didn't show up so there was no computer so i couldn't do the slideshow uh but i had brought handouts you know, and I, I told Annie, I was like, why don't I just and they're doing art classes. So there's all these art classes. There was an advanced critique class, a poetry class, a paper craft class and a drawing class going on and a painting class going on. And I was like, why don't I just pop around to all the different tables and talk to everybody and see what they're working on? So I just kind of improvised. Right. Which you have to do a lot when you teach because things go wrong all the time. <laughs> and um, and so I did a little talk and the men were super, super, super receptive to the work. I had a great conversation with them. But there was a moment at the end, and I mean, it's a very intense situation in the prison, and people, the number one question people ask me about my experience working in the prison, and I, I ended up teaching at the Lancaster Institute, a um, in, uh, prison for men up in Lancaster, it's like north of Los Angeles, for about a year. But the thing people always ask me is, were you afraid? And weirdly, no, no, I wasn't. Like, the men, and I taught once at a women's prison they want these classes so badly, you know? They love the art classes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so they want you to be there, and it's, this is a, a reparative act, you know? It's an act of rehabilitation, and these are people who are healing themselves and through art, and so it was, it was just inspiring every minute. But that first day where everything went wrong, I ended up at the poetry table, and there was a student there, an older fellow, who had written this poem and he read the poem and I don't remember the whole poem, but there was a moment in it. So in the prison, there's like this yard, this like, it's like a hard pan yard that they hang out, you know, when they get their yard time, they go out there and lift weights and, you know, play baseball and do whatever else they do. And, um, it's a pretty grim place, you know, there's not like a lot there. And it's this hard pan dirt, you know, and he had found a flower growing in the hard pan and he wrote a poem about the flower and how the flower he watched it every day and how the flower had turned its face to the sun so that it could grow. And so that he tried to be like the flower. And so he would turn his face to the sun every day. And I kept it together the whole time I was in that prison, gave him good critique, you know, listened. I made it out to my car at the end of that day. And I just cried and cried and cried because, you know, it was like, that simple gesture of gratitude for the sun yeah like what could we all learn you know like i felt so like humbled yeah you know and so it was a lot of moments like that where you know people would find it's like the story about my student from iran you know and making the jewelry it's like you find something you know you find something and so when I have those students who are able to do that, that's, that's really special. And, um, you know, the, the prison I taught at in Lancaster, there was something there. HBO made a documentary about it oh. called um, Life Without. I think that's the name of it. But there's uh, an honor yard there of men who have, they all have life without parole, which means they're no, it's a life sentence. They're never getting out. And they've decided to live a life free of crime, drugs, and um, racial strife. And they work together so that they can have programs. And they have an art studio, like a beautiful art studio. And I taught in that studio for a little while. And you go through this prison, which is this intimidating place, right? This brutalist architecture. And then you, you go into this hallway and into the honor yard and into this art studio that they've all built with their own money from commissary. And it's, like, got pink walls, and there's paintings everywhere, and all the guys are in there making art all day long. Wow. And it's like you enter into another parallel universe when you walk into the studio. And I thought, wow, you know, if you are an artist, you find a way to make that work.
0: Yeah, no kidding.
1: And that was, like, hugely inspiring. Like, these guys were so inspiring, what they were doing. And they teach each other. Like, their whole... Um, methodology is that when one learns a the skill, they teach it to everybody else. Oh, man. I, I know. It's like, it's weird. I was in a men's prison, but there was like a real feminist mindset <laughs> to the way that they were educating each other and, and helping each other. So that was really cool. But it really, you know, it, it really, I think in this country, prisons are so far outside everybody's. Normal experience, right? They're always placed way out, far away from everybody. You can't see them. There's no, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, hard, it's hard to get out of these, you know, there's this kind of exclusion zone around them. And so, in the psyche of the populace, you know, they're really this place where undesirable people, you know, and of sure, people have committed crimes, but, you know, Father Greg says, Imagine if the only thing a stranger knew about you was the worst thing you ever did. <sighs> Right. And so why can't we think about people as whole people, even incarcerated people? And that's a valuable lesson. I learned that from these, these students in the Mm -hmm. prison. That's a pretty serious lesson.
0: (laughs) Yeah. No kidding. And like, again, back to the privilege thing, like it just makes you realize like, you know, to appreciate everything and like, you know, look for those flowers in the cracks and the, the, you know, the plastic in the prison floor and you know, to not take for granted what you've got.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Annie, and I, I have to say Annie Buckley, I admire her so much. Like she has really, it's really, it's it's a real bureaucratic challenge working with institutions of any kind, be it a prison or a university. And she's working with universities and with prisons and with nonprofits and with the state. And somehow she makes this program thrive. Like she's an incredible person. So, um, because mm. it's really, really exhausting. I mean, the year that I spent um teaching in the prisons, uh, my own studio practice really took a little bit of a backseat because it was a lot of work and I went every weekend um almost every weekend. and you know it's you would come home and just need to rest because oh, sure. you know it's really intense because the level of scrutiny you're being watched all the time and you know, you have to make sure you don't say the wrong thing or do the wrong, you know, because you don't want to get kicked out of the prison. So because there's a lot of rules you got to follow, you know, so you're, you're kind of on the super heightened awareness for an extended period of time. Would you do it again? Yeah, I definitely would. I, I told Annie, I was like, you know, I'm always happy to come back as a guest give a talk, do a guest lecture, things like that. But I mean, I already have two full-time jobs. I'm a painter (laughs) and I university and I, I just couldn't do a third one as much as I loved the work and believed in the work. I, I felt like at a certain point, um, it was taking away from what I was doing at the university with my own students because I have so many, I mean, a senior professor in the program. So, you know, I have a lot of responsibilities. Yeah. Well, and you're married and you'd like to probably stay married. I do have like a personal life. Yeah, I know that's always weird. Shocked. Yeah, like if you see us at the drugstore. They're always like, "What, Professor Fields? <laughs> you're toilet paper and toothpaste." <laughs> I'm like, oh, don't want to get in cavities.
0: <laughs> Aren't you just tucked doing your? They just lock you into your office at night. Okay, see you tomorrow.
1: I always joke that I'm like a hologram. Like, yeah, you know, when you <laughs> leave the campus boundaries, I disappear. You know. Really
0: I know up. my son's always pretty weirded out when he sees his teachers. You know out for sushi or something. It's just like, whoa, what are they doing here (laughs) with their children?
1: Weird. We we talked about that in the R307 class too, because I asked them, I was like, do you guys think it's weird when you see your teachers? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, you guys know we're people, right? Um, And I think a lot of times we move through the world treating people like what we think they are instead of what they actually are, like these ideas we have you know, like yeah. a teacher, is a certain thing, like an incarcerated person is a certain, right. You know, like we think these things and people well, and, are- we, and we
0: might even wear those masks ourselves. If people, you know, um, are, you think that they're expecting that of you?
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I have a professor voice. It's no lie.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, I was telling somebody <laughs> this story the other day and they're like, you should tell this story on the podcast. And I feel weird telling it, but I'm going to tell it. Oh, I I'm ready. I'm listening. Okay. Well, it sounds, it's okay. So I'm going to get deep, Sam. Okay. I'm
1: ready. Okay.
0: So last December I was in Aspen. I was doing, I had curated a show at Sky Gallery in Aspen and um, we've been working on it for months. And um, right before the show, my dad died very suddenly unexpectedly. And which is why the podcast has been on hold for a year because I just didn't have it in me. And, um, but for some reason I was like, I don't know, I think I was still in shock. So I was like, I have to go to Aspen. Like, why didn't I just cancel? I don't know. Even all the girls that that run the gallery are like, why are you here? I was like, I don't know. I was just in shock and this was what I had planned. And so here I go. So I went with, um, two of the artists were, um, Daisy Patton and, um, Megan Hildebrand. So we all shared an Airbnb and, um, they were really lovely and took care of me and stuff. But then, so here we are off to the opening and I was doing a book signing and stuff because my, um, book that you're in, a big important art book now with women had just come out as well. So we're going to do a signing and everything. And, um, so we're walking, you know, and I, I'm psyching myself up. I'm now the Jealous Curator. So the gels Curator mask is on, right? And I'm just putting everything else aside. And so we're walking over, walking through beautiful Aspen in December, and it's snowing and lovely, and we're walking over there. And I slipped on black ice, just like both feet, just right out from under me, and I fell on my shoulders and my head all in one impact. Oh, and Daisy and Megan, I just remember <laughs> <laughs> their faces. Like And I screamed and I just lost it. And I was crying so hard. And Daisy was like, oh my God, we're going to have to call 911. Like she said, it was such a hard hit that they thought something had gone terribly wrong. But I think I, it did really hurt. But I also just really wanted to cry really, really hard because I'd been holding it all in because of my dad, right? And so I'm holding it. And so it was just a really good excuse to super duper cry. But we're on our way to the opening. So they peel me off the sidewalk and we're like now half a block from the gallery so I kind of pull myself together again and we walk up and we can see there's probably 200 people in the gallery and I was just like showtime and I remember feeling like I've never felt like this before but I remember feeling like I was just putting on a mask And I was going to be the jealous curator and I was going to put everything else aside. And I did a a talk about the book and I signed books and I chatted and I took photos and I did all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, it's just like, I just felt like vertigo and nauseous. And it's like, I couldn't wear the mask anymore. (sighs) And I said to Daisy, I need to get out of here immediately.
1: (laughs) (laughs) How did you make it before that happened? Like, how, how long were you there? Probably
0: hour and a half, two hours. Wow. But I've never felt like that before. I think it was just, you know, everything with my dad and stuff too, but it was just very much like, you know, I walked in and I heard a few people go, there she is, there she is. Like, and I knew, you know, okay, these people have read the book or they follow the podcast and they're going to expect me to be what they are expecting me to be.
1: Right. right. So I
0: need to be what they're wanting. Yeah. Yeah it was a really weird thing. And I I mean, I didn't, I mean, the jealous curator is me. Like there is no mass, there is no whatever, but I don't know. It was just the weirdest out of body experience I've ever had. And it hasn't happened since. And it never really happened before, but it was just, I don't know, maybe it was the hit on the head, but it was just really an odd feeling to feel like I was supposed to be something that people were expecting me to be.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Because you're, you're, you're grieving and grieving is, mysterious and complex and never the same way twice, even for the same person, you know? So it, you don't, it doesn't, it doesn't define itself. Right. So it sneaks up on you. That's how I was. Yeah.
0: And I had never experienced grief like, like this before. Like I've lost people before, but not with the, the trauma that came with it and not with the suddenness that came with like all the craziness that came with it. Um, Oh, I was just a mess. And, um, yeah, which is partly why I stopped the podcast. I, I stopped a lot of things because I just, I got so much really nice advice from people. Exactly what you just said. Like grief is different every time it's different for every person every time. And, um, one of my best friends said, um, cause her dad had died about two years ago and she said, you know what? It's okay to not be okay. Yeah. And I always try to be okay. Like, I always try to be in control. And as soon as she said, it's okay to not be okay, it was like 100 pounds came off my shoulders. And I was like, oh, okay, like, I'm not going to worry about if the podcast is running, if this is happening, if this is happening. It's just like, you know what? I just need to go at my own speed for as long as I need to go at that speed. And, you know, now, like, I'm co- we're coming up on a year of, you know, since he passed. And it's like, I'm still sad, but it's like, okay, I am... Pitching, you know, I pitched the kids book and I brought the podcast back and cause I know he'd be proud of me to do all of that.
1: Yeah. And you were ready.
0: Yeah, I was ready. I felt like I had the, um, motivation to do it where before I just did not. Right.
1: Yeah. It's hard to give ourselves permission to step away.
0: Yeah. I think especially again, like the social media thing, right? Like you're supposed to be like, you don't want people to forget about you. So you have to stay. And it's just like, I, I don't care. I just didn't care. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, I feel that way about the art world a lot, too. Like, they say you're only as good as your last show. And I'm like, oh, that's a horrible way to think about being an artist. Yeah. You know, like, I don't... I mean, I know that's that's common wisdom, but I don't I don't know if I buy it myself. No, and but. that's a terrible
0: thing to buy, too, because then, you know, oh, why would you want to be an
1: artist? Yeah, because, I mean, the show is one month, maybe, of you know, where several years worth of work is up. Well, what about all that other time?
0: Yeah, (laughs) all that other time and everything that came before that led to this and what this is going to lead to, like, I sort of see it as a big, giant collective. Again, like going back to the everybody's personal stories, right? Like, it all shapes into one big, beautiful mess.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's, the. I think, one of the nicest things about teaching. And, you know, I have to say, because we're talking about teaching and things I've learned I I've always done it. Even as a kid, I wanted to teach the other little kids in the neighborhood, which did not make me popular, but <laughs> I made people mimeographed homework and sent them home with it. You know, like I was pretty <laughs> hardcore about it. Um, and it, it's like these stories we tell, like through our artwork and through our lives, like teaching is part of that. It's because we're teaching art, you know, we're not teaching hard science. Yeah. Even you you too, like I've seen you in action, man, you are a natural. And even just knowing that you needed to step away for yourself, like if you don't take care of yourself, you're not, anything you give to the world's not going to be great anyway.
0: That's how I felt. I just felt like I wasn't going to be able to do what I wanted to do the way I do it. I just didn't have, I didn't have it to give. I just felt empty, you know, and my tank was empty and I needed to take time to refill it. And it's, it's full again. And I feel really good. And, um like you know that's why I'm so excited to to shake up the podcast a little bit and have people like you and you know my magnificent nine because you're all so generous and smart and talented and I just think like that's what I want to give to the amazing talented you know generous people that are listening
1: yeah it's it's really you know honestly like when you came to CSUN and I saw you with those students like some people are natural teachers, some people naturally wanna work with others, right? Mm. And I think that we do things like what we do, like make art, do a podcast, write all these books that you do. Sometimes we forget that our audience is actually behind us and supportive of us. Yeah. Like, you know, like you were like, I wanna give the people what they want, but at the same time, like you are beloved, right? So of course the people who are fans of the work you do they want you. They're gonna be okay. They- I know. I know.
0: It's this is my perfectionist control freakism, but, um, but it's funny that you say I'm a natural teacher because I think I gave kids homework too when I was little, <laughs> I
1: love
0: it. and that's why I said when I did those crits in your class where I was like excited slash bossy because you know it's just yeah it is. Um, I've always been like that too.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you and I have a similar kind of modus operandi, and mine is like be helpful. Like, just try to be helpful to other people.
0: Wouldn't that be nice if everybody was like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I try to cultivate that with my students. I'm like, you know, your job is to just be helpful. And sometimes being helpful means listening. And sometimes being helpful means doing. And sometimes being helpful means letting people off the hook when they need some time to grieve or do what they need to do for themselves. You know, it's like, you're constantly negotiating all these judgments about how to spend your time and how to interact with people. But I feel like if you use helpfulness as kind of a guiding star, then that actually works out pretty well for me. Anyway, (laughs) So
0: see, and this is why it's so funny when, um, so everybody listening, when I, what I did spend that day at CSUN and then, um, Sam was nice enough to drive me back to where I was staying. And how long do you think we were in the car? It's LA traffic. That was like an hour, probably.
1: At least an hour. At least
0: an hour. And it was like soul sister talk. It was, it was like we had, there was so many, I didn't want to get out of that car.
1: I know, I was sad
0: when you left. I know, me too. I was just like, but there's so much more to say. And um, we got some more of it out today, but I feel like there's still like years worth that we need to do.
1: Yeah, I really I'm really grateful to Melinda uh for making this introduction because You know me too. Yeah, when you meet people who kind of have that your same philosophy, that's that's a really nice. It's like your tribe, you know. You have these people who get you. I know. I know. Yeah. And
0: you're one of those people.
1: Thank you. Oh, love, love, like-
0: mutual love, love.
1: Um okay, before
0: we go, I wanted to again back to your students. Um because I, you know, again, platform for other people. I love shouting out other people. Are there um, two or three of your students, either current or past, that you think um, we should go and follow and be watching what they're doing because they're doing crazy, amazing things? And I'll, if you can think of people, I'll put their handles and stuff in the post that I do with this so that people can find them easily. Um, But yeah, is there anybody you can think of?
1: Yes, I mean, I'll definitely send you links to the work from all the people I mentioned, including the Prison Arts Collective. Because um, they, you know, there's a website where you can read about the work they awesome. do. Awesome. I was gonna ask uh, you that. Yeah. Yeah, I'll do that. And then there's a couple of graduates that came to mind when you asked me. Um, the first one is um, Christine Showmaker, who I think you know.
0: Um, Art and Cake,
1: Right. Art and cake, yeah, yeah, and and shoebox PR. So she uh, is a studio artist and also an art historian. She also studied art history. Um, And she was one of my graduate students. And she's got this kind of media empire here in Los Angeles um, and does a lot of work supporting artists and is doing work about body image and body perception. Um, And she has a big Perceive Me project coming up that you can follow. I will bet a lot of your listeners are already following her on social media. Mm -hmm. and are aware of the work that she's doing, but she's one um, another one is Beatrice Cortez. Um, so Beatrice is actually a faculty member at Cal State Northridge. Um, and she is in the Central American Studies Department um, at Cal State Northridge. And she got her M.A. in the art department and I was on her committee. She went on to get her M.F.A. at Cal Arts and her career is just going like gangbusters. And she's doing this incredible work. Um, dealing with issues of colonization and immigration and this idea of the future imaginary, like imagining the future um, using some imagery from the past combined with imagery from now. And it's like this incredibly optimistic work that doesn't shy away from the problems we're facing. Hmm. So there's a lot of plants in her work and like, it's just, you have to see it. She's built. Is it
0: painting or collage or what is it? Sculpture,
1: Sculpture primarily. Yeah. Like she built a time machine. Oh, okay. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. And she's made like a fortune telling machine and some arcade games. I mean, the work is so cool and she is so smart and she's really everywhere right now. So if you look her up, it's really easy to see her work. Okay. Um, I'm super duper proud of her and love her to bits. And Alex Kizu is a long time. He um, graduated uh, from Cal State Northridge, and he was one of my undergrads. So Chris and Beatrice were graduate students. But Alex was an undergrad student, and he goes by his handle, Defer. He's a street artist. Um, he showed at L.A. Louvre recently. Um, he makes textiles. He does work with the community. He is, like, this lovely, lovely, lovely person. Um, some of my students have reached out to him because, you know, they're big fans, and he is always so gracious. Oh to them and you know he's going to come back to CSUN and give a talk I was like Alex you got to come back and talk to the students because they all love you (laughs) Uh, so and he's got a really big social media presence so he is also super easy to find so those are three really notable people that kind of are interesting right like if you follow them they're all really different but they all have really something interesting to offer Mm -hmm. that is awesome
0: thank you so much I want to do that with you every time you're on because I know you have like an endless list of amazing people that have gone through that program that, you know, even like the people that were, that, that I met with their undergrads that I met with.
1: You met with graduate students. Oh,
0: were they graduate students? Okay. And, um, just the things that they're doing was just insane. So, um, keep that little mental list going. And next time you're on, we'll, we'll do another three.
1: I will definitely do that. And I have been at CSUM for 21 years, 20. Yeah. So I got a list. I bet you do. Oh my God,
0: that's crazy. Um, Sam, this was so great. I didn't mean to tell that crazy story, but you know what? I think I will just leave it in
1: there. You know what? I think people need to hear it. Yeah. I think I just, and I
0: think I needed to say it out loud. I think it's part of my healing. And you know, if anybody else is going through grief stuff or hard things or whatever, I think, you know, um, there's always somebody who's gone through something similar that, you know, like even that friend that said, it's okay to not be okay. um, I think that it can apply to all sorts of stuff, divorce or loss or anything that's going on with you. You know, it's okay to not be okay. And even people you assume are always okay, aren't. And that's okay too.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Um, I loved every second of this. Me too. Um, And thank you so much for, you know, All of your, like I said so many times, you're so generous with your information and, um, you know, very much heart on sleeve. And I think that's, you know, our soul sister thing too. And um, yeah, just thank you so much. And we'll have you back on in a couple of months and we'll do it again.
1: I look forward to it.
0: Okay. Thanks, Sam. Bye. Bye. I love her so much. And I bet now you do too. So, for this week's assignment, I want to use the story Sam told about her student who was imprisoned but made jewelry from the scraps, plastic that she found in the dirt floor, and the prisoner who wrote poetry about the flower growing in the prison yard. Let's make something from nothing. While you're out and about, yes, okay, I am Canadian. (laughs) Keep your eyes open for a piece of trash or a weed or something that's considered not worth anything. Collect a few if you're inspired to, and then bring those bits home and turn them into something special. Work the trash into a collage or make it part of a sculpture. Press the weed in a book or use it to do a cyanotype print. If you make something that you want to share post it on Instagram and use the hashtag AFYEProjects. That's art for your ear projects. Hashtag AFYEProjects. To see all of the work and to get the links that Sam and I talked about, just pop over to my site, thegealouscurator.com, and you'll find everything there. And with that, I'm going to say thank you so much to Samantha Fields, a.k.a. my soul sister Sam, for joining me today. Thanks to Thrive Mastermind for supporting this episode, and of course, thank you for listening. There will be more art for your ear next weekend. See you then.